0: Hello all of you beautiful people, Jules here for WhatCulture.com, and I've got a question for you. Why do people make movies? Well, I know that the more cynical amongst us would say because they want to make some money, but if we're being, like, artistic, we'd say it's because they have a vision that they want to bring to the silver screen. Not many people would probably say that they made a movie out of spite, though. But here we are. As I'm Jules, this is WhatCulture.com, and these are 10 movies that were probably made out of spite. Number 10. Fantastic Four 2015 Perhaps the most common reason for a major movie being hurriedly thrown together beyond the craven pursuit of money, of course, is that a studio doesn't want their rights to a given IP to lapse. Most contracts between movie studios and rights holders will allow the rights to revert back to the original owners if a new film isn't made within a certain number of years, and so studios obviously have a vested interest to keep the movies coming. This was absolutely true of Fox's Fantastic Four movies. After 2007's Rise of the Silver Surfer cratered at the box office, the studio had seven years to get a new project out in front of cameras before the rights returned to Marvel's studios, and so 2015's hastily assembled Josh Trank-helmed reboot began filming just barely seven years prior to the previous film's release. Between critical scorn, an atrocious box office performance, and an infamously troubled production, all it really did was keep the IP out of Marvel's hands for a few more years. But given that Disney acquired Fox back in 2019, Marvel Studios ironically ended up owning the three prior Fantastic Four movies anyway, and are presently in the early stages of putting together a reboot with MCU Spider-Man filmmaker. John Watts helming the project. The definition of spite is delivering a self owned just so your rivals can't have nice things for a little while longer, and this is definitely that. Number 9 Raiders of the Lost Ark. As much as George Lucas has confirmed time and time again that the Indiana Jones franchise was inspired by the adventure serials that he and director Steven Spielberg grew up watching, there is an altogether dishier rationale for the series' existence. Prior to the creation of Indy, Spielberg was incredibly eager to direct a James Bond film, even directly approaching Bond producer Cubby Broccoli after the release of Jaws, though Broccoli thought he wasn't a good fit to helm Bond. Spielberg tried again after the release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind two years later, but was knocked back because his asking price was apparently now too high. At this point, Spielberg declared, Forget it! and while stewing over the double rejection, was persuaded to direct Raiders of the Lost Ark, which George Lucas pitched to him as being better than James Bond. Spielberg was quickly sold, deeming the concept a James Bond film without the hardware. And after a few tweaks, namely changing the character's surname from Smith to Jones, it was a done deal. The film's immediate critical and commercial success launched a phenomenally successful IP, and to rub salt in the wound, Raiders of the Lost Ark trounced the new Bond film, for your eyes only, at the 1981 box office. Number 8. Never Say Never Again the Bond franchise itself isn't entirely averse to a little pettiness, given the release of the 1983 non-Canon 007 outing Never Say Never Again, which was the culmination of a two-decades-plus quest by producer Kevin McClory to assert his rights over Ian Fleming's 1961 novel Thunderball. Basically, McClory worked with Fleming to write a script for a potential nautical-themed Bond film which eventually was discarded, with Fleming repurposing it into the Thunderball novel without crediting McClory or scriptwriter Jack Whittingham. A lawsuit was later set Settled, which allowed McClory to produce the 1965 Eon-produced Bond film Thunderball, but not adapt his own version of the novel for at least a decade. After years of development and a legal challenge from Fleming's trustees, McClory's version of Thunderball, Never Say Never Again, was finally released in 1983. Better still, it pulled off the incredible coup of luring Sean Connery back to play 007 some 12 years after he'd hung up the suit in Diamonds Are Forever. Bond fans remain sharply divided on the film, which while elegantly directed by The Empire Strikes Back, Irvin Kershner unavoidably feels like a retread of what came before. Even so, that the film exists at all is a sure testament to McClory's ability to hold a grudge for more than 20 years. Which is pretty impressive. 7. Red State the last decade or so of Kevin Smith's career sure has been, um, well, something, that's for sure, and the major departure point for The Clerks' filmmaker came with 2011's Red State. The low-budget horror film was a total creative 180 for a director who'd staked his name on irreverent comedies, but Red State truly felt like the work of a director trying to thumb his nose at his detractors. It's little secret that Smith had a tough time shooting the more mainstream comedy Zack and Miri Mega porno, which ultimately disappointed at the box office, and in an attempt to deliver a surefire hit, he next tackled the 2010 Bruce Willis buddy cop disaster, Cop Out. After catching enormous flack for Cop Out, which remains the only film that he's ever directed without also writing, Smith was in search for a reset, and so decided to make Red State for just $4 million, which was by far his lowest budget since 1997's Chasing Amy. It wasn't just the film's aggressively unexpected tone which felt spiteful, yet in a good way mostly, but the fact that Smith originally planned to auction off the film's rights at its 20 the 11 Sundance premiere, only to reveal that he would actually be self-distributing it. The movie was widely criticised by Hollywood commentators who felt that Smith was attempting a childish gotcha against both his critics and Hollywood as a whole. And this is all before he went on to make Tuscan yoga hoses. Number 6. Glass M. Night Shyamalan has had one of the most fascinating careers of any major filmmaker, from being crowned as the next Spielberg following The Sixth Sense to his more divisive follow-ups and a couple of blockbuster duds and then what appeared to be a more reserved comeback. Jaws, were dropped around the world when Shyamalan Split was revealed to be a secret, unbreakable sequel seemingly setting the stage for a third film to bring the constituent characters together for an epic showdown. But Glass really wasn't that movie at all. Audiences conditioned on the formula of modern superhero movies quite clearly expected Glass to be a big-scale follow-up to Unbreakable and Split, with Bruce Willis, James McAvoy and Samuel L. Jackson throwing down with one another in a mighty superhero brawl. But Shyamalan, seemingly on a quest to troll viewers expecting this, gave them anything but. The three principal actors spent huge chunks of the film locked in Inside an asylum, and the brief action sequences are minimalist and pretty unremarkable, and even the setup for a bombastic third act turns out to be a red herring. Oh, and the film also ends with all 3 superpowered individuals dead. In effect, Shyamalan was taking your expectations for a glass sequel and plugging them in the head at close range. If nothing else, though, it felt like Shyamalan was getting revenge on critics and audiences for his most expensive failures, namely The Last Airbender and After Earth, by subverting the formula of the tentpole movie and delivering something far smaller and less commercial. It's certainly an interesting provocation that you can't really blame audiences for finding it unsatisfying either. 5. Unsane It's often joked about that Steven Soderbergh directs his films in spite of himself, because as accomplished a filmmaker as he is, he also seems so thoroughly fed up with the traditional Hollywood method of shooting and releasing a film. 2017's Logan Lucky saw him come out of retirement to direct the film and also independently distribute it, which despite his tireless efforts performed modestly at the box office. For his next project, he radically changed tack, shooting his low-key thriller Unsane on an iPhone 7 Plus with minimal cast and crew for just 1.5 million dollars. Though Unsane wasn't a reaction to Logan Lucky's failure given that it was filmed in secret shortly before the film's release, it does nevertheless speak to Soderbergh's deep-seated desire to disrupt Hollywood's established order. At least in the case of Unsane, it managed to turn a profit, and proved successful enough that Soderbergh made another iPhone film, 2019's acclaimed sports drama High Flying Bird. Like many left-field filmmakers, he seems to have found his niche these days on streaming services such as Netflix and HBO Max who were all too happy to pay for his movies given the prestige that his name brings to their platform. And his upcoming heist thriller No Sudden Move will mark his fourth straight release to a streaming service. Number 4. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker Following the success of Star Wars The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams was credited with revitalising Star Wars for both a new generation of fans and long-suffering older ones. Despite the familiar safety of The Force Awakens, it proved to be a firm foundation for a more adventurous and ambitious sequel, which for better or worse, The Last Jedi certainly was. Rather than take the leads from Abrams' film, The Last Jedi basically ripped up the rulebook, throwing out some of the more sentimental, nostalgia-laced aspects of The Force Awakens and forging on an uncharted path ahead. As a result, it was massively divisive between fans, and though J.J. Abrams was certainly diplomatic when discussing the film, the result of his follow-up The Rise of Skywalker tells a different story. As many fans feared, much of The Rise of Skywalker was basically an attempt to undo Johnson's more radical and controversial storytelling elements, while relying on tried and tested nostalgia bait, such as the return of Emperor Palpatine as the primary antagonist. If The Last Jedi was a response to Star Wars' obsession with nostalgia, it was a wild over correction by Abrams to move the needle back into the intended direction of The Force Awakens, and unsurprisingly, gave many fans whiplash. 3. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote When The Man Who Killed Don Quixote finally premiered in 2018, it was the culmination of a near 30-year project to get the film, based very loosely on the 17th century novel made. After 2000's Johnny Depp starring version was cancelled mid-production due to a number of practical and financial issues, director Terry Gilliam mounted several subsequent attempts to get it made between 2003 and 2016, all of which resulted in failure due to monetary and scheduling problems. But given that his original attempt had been immortalised in the brilliant 2002 documentary, Lost in La Mancha, his quest became something of a cause in its own right, with film fans rooting for the director from the sidelines to get back into the saddle every time something fell through. Even so, fans were shocked to hear in 2017 that the film was finally in production and starring Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. A 76-year-old Gilliam seemingly flipped an enthusiastic middle finger at God himself as he finally completed a relatively incident-free shoot. Though we had to sort through a tangle of legal issues in order to get the film released, it finally premiered at hands 2018 to broadly positive reviews. Most critics simply relieved that the man could get closure on this chapter of his life and his career. Considering his age when shooting the movie, it likely would have been his last realistic attempt to get it done, and if nothing else, it's an incredible testament to the man's perseverance. Fate himself was telling him that the film would never be made, and he simply told her, no, it is. Number 2. Shrek Shrek is such a wonderful, heartwarming movie that it's tough to imagine its primary creative impetus was Vengeful Fury, but that is exactly what happened. Jeffrey Katzenberg served as the chairman of Walt Disney Studios from 1984 to 1994, a tenure which ended a major falling out with Disney CEO Michael Eisner and Walt Disney's nephew Roy E. Disney. Katzenberg was ultimately forced to resign from Disney and received an estimated $250 million settlement after filing a suit. Later in 1994, he co-founded, DreamWorks, and soon enough he set about producing an adaptation of William Steig's 1990 picture book, Shrek. Even the most casual observer of the Shrek movie will appreciate how thoroughly it skewers both general fairy tales and more pointedly tired Disney tropes, deconstructing them with a playful wink at the audience. It's no stretch at all to suggest that this was Katzenberg's ultimate to Disney, to creatively rib how their animated output had become tired by the turn of millennium, long after the renaissance which Katzenberg himself spearheaded had come and gone. In the lead up to the film's release, Disney responded by refusing to air commercials for Shrek on their Radio Disney station, and DreamWorks clapped back by releasing Shrek on home video the same day as Monsters Inc., where it went on to become one of the best selling DVDs ever. But perhaps the real validation of Katzenberg's cinematic tantrum was that Shrek beat Monsters Inc. to win the first ever Best Animated Film Oscar, and even today Shrek remains one of the few DreamWorks films that can truly live up to the majesty of Disney's finest. And number 1. The End of Evangelion 1997's The End of Evangelion was produced by the ambitious ending to the original Neon Genesis Evangelion anime series which left fans confused and pretty irritated, many feeling that the director, Hideaki Anno, had spectacularly dropped the ball. Unfortunately, fans simply couldn't voice their displeasure in a respectful way, and so the director went on to receive death threats for how he chose to end the show. When production company Gainax floated the idea of a film to give the series a more satisfying and complete ending, he basically used the opportunity to stick it to petulant fans by giving them another baffling head-scratcher of an ending, but at least it's a visually mesmerising one. You can practically feel the disdain bleeding off the screen while watching this movie, which adopts a considerably darker, less hopeful tone than the series ever did, and basically strains itself to give answers that will challenge audiences expecting something more controversial. In the film's unforgettable live-action sequence, Anno even included brief clips of the hate mail that he received, or rather replicas of the letters, for legal reasons. Now You can't really fault him here, as he was able to get his own back on the trolls while still delivering an artistically accomplished piece of work.